Hey, well, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you before, my name's Cole and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And I'm just so excited that we get to open God's word um, together. So uh, to know my mom is to love my mom. Um, she's as good as they come. And I don't know about you, but like growing up, I have all these little phrases um, that she would say along and along, whether or not it was, Cole, you can't do everything or everything in moderation or um, treat everybody with kindness. Like there was all these little things along and along. And as I've gotten older, there has been one phrase that has continued. Um, even being married, moving away, like all the things, this is, this is the phrase that mom has continued to say, Cole, you've got to stand up straight. Like, like that's been it, you know, because for whatever reason, growing up, I was a little bit of a sloucher, you know, those shoulders down and in, craned over the neck. I don't know, maybe you've got a middle schooler or maybe you're an adult who's obsessed with their iPhone and, and that neck is bent over. Even I was in a wedding about a year ago, I was dressed in my finest men's warehouse tux and uh, was just like, you know, hadn't seen mom, I don't know for how long, we, we live in different places. And, and so I, I go see her after the wedding, first thing out of her mouth, wonderful, wonderful woman. She says, Cole, you gotta stand up straight. <laughs> like, like, you know, I must've been like slouching over next to the groom. Uh, but this just kind of got me thinking about our physical uh, posture. And so I did some digging um, and come to find out mom was onto something. Uh, that if you have bad posture, if you're slunched over down and in, uh, that this will, this will most likely misalign your musculoskeletal system. Um, not only that, but if you've got bad physical posture, um, over time, it's going to wear away at your spine. Um, not only that, it's gonna cause some neck, shoulder, and back pain. Um, so yeah, you staring at that iPhone, it's not only just gonna do that, it's gonna decrease your flexibility. Um, more bad news that if you've got bad physical posture, it's going to affect how well your joints work. Um, so if you're creaking already, just wait, it's gonna get worse. Um, not only that, but uh, if you've got bad posture, it's gonna affect your balance. It's gonna increase the likelihood that you're going to fall. Um, hello, life alert. Um, not only that, um, but it is going to that meal that you're gonna head to afterwards today. Um, no matter if it's the greenest salad, it's gonna be harder for you to digest food. Um, but lastly, and probably most important, that if you have bad posture, it's gonna be hard for you to breathe. Um, that our physical posture has a lot to do with our physical health. So why do I start there this morning? Is that I would make an argument that it's not just your physical posture that matters, but it's your spiritual posture. And I would venture to say that there's an epidemic in our culture, maybe even an epidemic in our culture uh, or in our churches of bad spiritual posture. A life that's not oriented up and out towards God and neighbor, but a life that is oriented towards the self, towards putting all things in all what we think and what we feel and what our opinion is. And the deal is, is it's not just going to misalign your spine. A bad spiritual posture will misalign your soul. That, 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 a, that a bad spiritual posture is not just gonna wear away at your spine, it's gonna wear away at your life that it's not just going to decrease your flexibility, it's gonna decrease your ability to empathize with a person that's different than you. Um, it's not just going to cause unnecessary um, joint pain, but it's just gonna cause unnecessary life pain. That not just like how well your body works together, but the community that you live in, the web of relationships that your life, that makes up your life. Now, is it just gonna increase your ability to potentially fall, but it's gonna potentially lead you into tragedy in a fair that, never was, that you never thought would visit your door? Not only that, it's not just about digesting food, but it's harder for you to digest the word of God. It's not just harder to breathe, but it's harder to 
actually experience God's presence, not as an idea, but a felt reality. That our spiritual posture has so much to do with our spiritual health. And while I'm the bad news coal on a summer uh, July service at North Star, um, let's just make it worse. That you, we live in a culture that is spoon feeding you a life that would desire for you to have bad spiritual posture. I mean, think about it. What's the most catchy jingle that's an advertisement that we have today? It's Whopper, Whopper, Double Whopper. It's the BK commercial. I mean, literally Hans Zimmer wrote this jingle. It slaps, like it is good. Um, adults, slaps. This means it was really good. Thank you, college students. Um, it means it's a solid thing. It's a, reeling it in, reeling it in. Um, but how does the Burger King commercial end? BK, have it your way, you rule. Down and in. Or, or, or just this past weekend or past week, I went to the Peachtree Road Race. It's a family tradition. Everyone runs the race, and I'm the smart guy who sits on the side and eats the Krispy Kreme donuts um, and supports them. Uh, but we're stand, we all, our family has always sat at mile five in front of the Fine Arts Center. And what is the giant banner that hangs from the Fine Arts Center? Your stage, your story. Down and in. A posture that is saying, hey, it's about you and your life. That if your life was a movie, you would be the main character and it's all about you. And so God is inviting us not to have a unhealthy spiritual posture, but one that is oriented towards God and self. And so um, in honor of my mother today, I'm gonna challenge us to stand up straight to orient our lives, to orient our hearts, to orient our spiritual life towards God and neighbor. So we're gonna be in the book of Genesis today. Genesis chapter three is where we'll camp out. We'll spend a little bit of time in different places. Um, but before uh, we go any further, I do wanna give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going. Um, so the first thing we're gonna look at is the root of our problem. What is the root of our spiritual posture problem? And then I want us to look at the fruit of that. So what it produces in us and in the world. And then the last thing we're gonna give, I'm gonna just provide an invitation um, to, to have better posture. So root, fruit, invitation. Um, let's pray together, would we? Uh, our Father, we thank you uh, for these sacred moments uh, that every woman and every man within the sound of my voice is known by you, loved by you. Um, and Lord, they're not here by coincidence today. And so Father, I just pray that you'd speak to them. And if you would, in your own seat, would you pray? And would you ask God to speak to you? And if you would be willing, uh, would you pray for me that I would actually be helpful to you um, and to your family? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And we pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. All right, so the book of Genesis is the opening book in the narrative of scripture. I hope you know this, but your Bible has 66 books in it, all telling one story of God's redemption, of his loyal love, of his hesed love. Uh, and it's in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter one, um, we see that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything that he's eternal, AKA he has no beginning and has no end, that he's infinite, he's limitless in his love, goodness and grace, and that he's unchangeable, but that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and it's in, the, in Genesis one that God is creating by his powerful word that the seas and the skies and the fish and the animals all are living and are flourishing under his loving rule. And then in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he creates us. 
his image bearers, his, the climax of his creation, and that all human beings were created to know God, to love him, live with him, and to glorify him forever, that they are situated in the garden. Eden literally means beautiful. Like he's, they are situated in the beautiful garden to be and dwell with God forever. It's a picture of shalom. Now, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, but it's more than just um, tranquility, but it's the idea of completion, of wholeness, exactly how God intended it to be. Now, this is, an, I'm gonna, this is an important part in the message for me to share this. Um, Genesis 3, where we're gonna be today, is a very um, complicated passage, and there's a thousand different directions I could go with it. I have time to go in one direction. Um, so with that in mind, if, I, if we're reading through this and you're like, Cole, I wish you'd talk about this. Why is there this? Why is there this? Uh, the pastors at this church want to be your first call when you have a biblical or theological question, not Google or chat GPT. So this is an invitation to email me about your um, Genesis question and for us to sit down and have coffee and to talk about those things. Okay, does that make sense? Genesis chapter two, verse 17 is where we'll start. And we're in the shalom, the beautiful garden. And God says to his image bearers, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now it's here that God institutes some parameters around the beautiful garden, around his shalom. This would be another one of those questions that I don't have time to go into, um, but there is a tree that they are prohibited to eat from for if they eat from it, they will die. And at this point, Adam and Eve are situated with good posture towards God and neighbor. And then in Genesis 3, our story takes a turn. The scripture says this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or, the ser or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse six, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at and desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's in this passage that we see the glimpse. We get a picture of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and their temptation and original sin. It's at this moment that we see the, the, the cosmos' rupture because of their disobedience. That in 2.17, Genesis 2.17, he says, do not eat from the tree. And Adam and Eve eat from the tree. Now, if you're anything like me, when I first read this passage, it's like, okay, they eat of a uh, if you eat of the tree, you die. Like, God, this feels a little bit like an overreaction. Like, like why is this such a big deal? I, I think this is important for us to see, is that Adam and Eve do not eat from the tree because they are hungry. Adam and Eve eat from the tree because they're arrogant. 
that, that it's in this moment, their posture was once towards God and neighbor, that God was the one who was calling the shots. God was the one who was saying, this is the way, that is the way, and instead they chose my way. That Adam and Eve were designed to represent God. In Genesis three, they rival God. In Genesis one and two, Adam and Eve were designed to worship God. And here in Genesis three, they worship self. They were designed to go God's way. They chose their own way. They were, to- chose, they were meant to be oriented towards God and now they are oriented towards self. That they did the one thing that they were not to do. That they placed themselves at the center of the universe instead of God being at the center of the universe. And the author of Genesis is really trying to draw your attention to a few different things. Um, the first I would say is that he's really trying to draw your attention to the act of willful disobedience and independence. That that act is that of eating. And in fact, in chapter three, you can read this later, that the, the Hebrew word to eat is, trans, is, um, is repeated 12 different times. Now, I've always talked about follow the repetitions and the verbs. The, the repetition of this is to eat, to eat, to eat, to eat. And you could almost read it as disobey, disobey, disobey. They chose to do the thing to rival God, that they placed themselves at the center instead of God at the center. So so maybe think about it this way. Uh, In the 1500s, I believe there was a guy by the name of Nicholas Copernicus. Um, Some of you guys are like, Nicholas Copernicus? I think we've got a picture of my friend Nick, pretty stylish guy. Um, And so Copernicus here had a huge play in the world of astronomy. And so you can actually see it with his little instrument there. Um, But Copernicus was the first person to realize that the earth was not at the center of the universe, but that the sun was at the center of the universe. That we, we, and maybe in your classes in school, you've heard it was the difference between a geocentric model and a heliocentric model. So now a geocentric model is all pre-Copernicus. It's what he was fighting for. It was, the, it was this idea that the earth sits at the center of everything, that the sun, Jupiter, Mars, Pluto, if you even think it's a planet, all revolve around the earth. And friends, a geocentric model, what Copernicus was fighting against is a great analogy for our spiritual life. That we think we sit at the center of the universe and everything revolves around us. That our job around us, our family around us, our church around us, our community around us, the person who cut me off in work around us. Like that this idea that we are at the center, that, that first and foremost, sin is not an action, it's an attitude. That it it always starts with an attitude and leads to action. The attitude is, God, I know better than you. And we place ourselves at the center. And so friends, the, the problems that we experience, the sin, the spiritual posture, it's nobody's fault but our own. That we have chosen to put ourselves in the place of God. But you know, maybe, maybe that doesn't jive with you exactly. Um, so there's this uh, British thinker by the name of G.K. Chesterton. Um, and there was this radio show in Britain um, where people were calling in answering this prompt. What is wrong with the world? And so there were medical doctors calling in. The, the problem with the world is that we don't have enough health care. Like we don't have enough care. There are people who need more care. 
And then there were, um, you know, there were lawyers calling in saying, hey, the, the court system is broken. If we can fix this, like this will fix our problems with the world. There was politicians calling in, you know, we need more Democrats, we need more Republicans, we need more independents. Um, there, there were educators calling in, we need more education. Now, um, this is what we need. And G.K. Chesterton calls in. What is wrong with the world? And his answer, I am. That it's me. That, that, that Christian, are you more concerned with the sin on the news or the sin in the mirror? That, 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 that we are at the problem, that our, and point number one this morning is this, is that the root of sin, the root of it all is independence from God. It's choosing to place ourselves in the center of the universe, the, or put ourselves in the center of the story. When this is a story about God, that we are one of billion people, billions of people alive on planet earth right now. Isn't it kind of naive to think that this whole thing's about us? Or, or maybe G.K. Chesterton isn't your thing, but the great theologian Taylor Swift. <laughs> what does she say? Hi, it's me. I'm the problem, it's me. Yeah, I, yeah. She, I mean, she slaps too. She's got to figure it out. I mean, it's good. That this independence is the problem. But maybe you're a skeptic of the faith. Maybe you're an atheist or agnostic here and you're like, you know what, but a God at the center, that seems pretty selfish. Why, why, why is he at the center? Why am I not at the center? Do you realize that the earth is, I'm gonna get this wrong, but it's like one three thousandth the size of the sun. That the reason why the sun is at the center of the universe is that it has the weight, the size, the gravity to keep all of our solar system in perfect motion. And what would happen is if you place the earth at the center of the universe, it doesn't have the weight, it doesn't have the gravity and everything would fly off into chaos and oblivion that Saturn and Jupiter are running into each other, explosions everywhere. Friends, you do not have enough gravity and enough weight to be at the center of your life. Only God has that weight. Only God has that gravity. That it's in the book of Genesis 1 and 2 that we see as he is at the center, everything is working in perfect union, perfect. It's exactly as it was designed to be. But because Adam and Eve ate, because of their sin, we see that things of chaos go forth. We see in verse 8, that, or in verse, yeah, verse 8, that Adam and Eve were made for a relationship with God. But then when they hear God, they hide from him. That what they were made for is shattered by sin. That shalom we were talking about is shattered by sin. But not only is their relationship with God shattered by sin, but even their relationship with themselves. And what I mean by that, you ever have that, like if you're anything like me, the nagging insecurity, like the, the wondering, am I enough? Um, oh, I've gained a little bit of weight. Like this doesn't fit quite right. Like I'm not smart enough at my job. Like that insecurity, I mean, am I, that's, this may, it's just me. Is we see in verse seven that they realized they were naked and they felt shame. That they looked down and in and realized something was wrong. That that wholesomeness that they were created for was shattered by sin. But not only that, after Adam and Eve sin, what is the first thing Adam does but blame his wife? He goes, it was the woman. It's her fault. And friends, we were made to be in right relationship with each other. Like your relationship with your spouse, your parents, your cousins, your in-laws, your whoever. 
coworkers. It's supposed to be a perfect, right relationship, and that's shattered by sin. And then it's in verse, I don't have time to read it, but in verses uh, 17 through 20, we see that literally the ground on which was the beautiful garden, Eden, God says, because of this shattering of shalom, like you're gonna have to work really stinking hard to get food. There's gonna be thorns and thistles. You're gonna sweat. Like it's gonna be a pain in the, in, in the rear end to do this because there's been a shattering of what's happened. And so we see here is that yes, the root of sin is independence from God, but the fruit of sin, which is our point number two, is it's the death and decay of all things that everything God made begins to unravel because the thing that we've put at the center of our universe is not big enough to handle it. And things head south. Uh, So this really does make me think about uh, when I was in elementary school, we had at our, the house we grew up in was a, a brick house and there was a garage door underneath and it had glass windows across the bottom. Uh, and so what I loved to do was I would either throw the baseball up against that brick wall right above the glass windows, um, probably see where this is going. And, uh, and then I would also tennis racket, tennis ball. Just, I would just sit there and do this for hours. It was my thing, I loved it. Um, and there was just one time in particular uh, and with Wimbledon being on right now, this feels fitting as I hit a tennis ball as well as I've ever hit one. I mean, it was, it was solid. Um, and that ball went straight through that glass window. And y'all, I can like still see and hear um, the glass like hitting the carport on inside the garage door and then hitting the driveway and seeing it. And, and it was, there, was, there was no repair. There was no way I could fix this. And so I did what any elementary school kid would do. I ran and hide. It hid. I ran because I didn't know what to do. And, and here was the thought. What's gonna happen when dad gets home? Like it was, it was, it was his garage door, it's his, like, 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 like what's gonna happen when dad gets home? And friends, our first parents experienced that sensation that they committed cosmic treason, that their, the, the shalom was shattered. The, the window is broken on the ground and there is no recovery. And so we see in Genesis 3, 8, it says this, Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Catch this. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And it's in this moment that we are gonna get the first question that God asks. And verse nine says this. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Now it's in this question, and let's be clear here, God is not actually asking where they are. God knows all things, he's, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's in all places. God is not asking because he doesn't know. God is asking because he's calling them out. This is a very specific rhetorical device, rhetorical question um, that he's asking that is meant to call them back. Now, do you, do you catch it here that, that in their moment of rebellion, the thing that is most natural to you and to me is when someone does us wrong, we take a step away. But the heart of God in this passage is when they have rebelled, they have done the thing, they have shattered shalom, the glass is on the driveway, God initiates and takes a step forward. That he comes looking for them. But not only does he initiate, but he invites 
that, that he invites them back into relationship, that he invites them back, but not, at a co- not without a cost. And the third thing we'll see is that he acts. So here is the invitation of this question this morning. It's your third point is, so this is the invitation of grace. It's the invitation for you to come back to the Father. Now, I, I wanna be clear here is that God is uninterested in wiping Adam and Eve's sin underneath the rug. And honestly, he's uninterested in wiping and in just sweeping your sin under the rug. But where there is sin, there must be payment. Because where there is sin, there is death. And there had to be one who would die in our place to replace that broken window, to replace the shattered shalom. And God in his glory and in his majesty only waited eight verses to tell us about it. That Genesis 3.15, specifically the second part, verse B, is what many theologians refer to as the proto-evangelion. And what that simply means, proto, means first, and euangelion means gospel, that it's the first gospel. And in verse 15, as God himself is speaking to our adversary, speaking to the serpent, he says, there is coming one, a seed of the woman who will be born of Eve many generations from now. And you will simply bruise his heel or strike his heel and you will crush his head that it's the promise of the cross of Christ, that yes, Jesus died on that cross. Satan bruised his heel on that cross, but he crushed death. He crushed evil. He crushed it once and for all. That it's in verse 15 that we see these glimmers of hope, these glimmers of the gospel. But here's what, we know to, here's what I know to be true, is that uh, that day my dad did come home. Um, and I was in my room, hiding and uh, he came and got me and asked me, he's like, well, what happened? You know, what, what went on? And so I told him and he says, well, let's get in the truck and let's go to Kennesaw Glass right here off 41, which I learned is still open. So right there. Um, and uh, we drove down 41 and for whatever reason in my elementary school brain, like this garage window was gonna cost thousands upon thousands of dollars. Like I just was like convinced it was just gonna make us bankrupt, whole thing. So. We get to Kennesaw Glass and, you know, we meet with this gentleman and we, we get the parameters for the garage window. And I'm just like, I remember like standing at the counter, looking at dad and saying like, I can't pay for this. Like, I don't, I don't have the capacity to do that. And he just looked at me and says, Cole, this one's on me. It's paid for in full. And friends, there is then a replaced perfect glass window in that spot. And it's the same with our sin. It's the same with our brokenness that we have shattered shalom, that that there is brokenness all around. But God in his kindness has paid for it on our behalf on the cross. That Genesis 3.15 is pointing us forward towards this day in which Jesus will make all things new. That that yes, maybe you feel today that your life is in pieces. There is one who can give you a new window. Maybe you feel like there is no way that you can, you can come to God. He is still calling to us today. Where are you? Where are you? Last point for today is this. I hope you, just, you can take this home. 
live it for the rest of your life is this, is that we are great sinners. Like, don't miss that. We are great sinners, but Jesus is a greater savior. That yes, like if we were to, like if your worst critic was to get inside of your mind, like they would have so much more to work with. They're like, we are a mess. We are a twisted, selfish, bad posture people. But Jesus is the one who can straighten us out. He is the one who can restore the window. He is the one who can make all things new. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you uh, that that story in Genesis is not just something that happened, um, but Lord, it's the thing that always happens. Um, that Lord, that we've chosen our own way. That instead of representing you, God, we chose to, to rival you. And Father, I just pray today that we would hear your voice saying that one question, where are you? And God, that instead of hiding in the trees, hiding in our room, hiding behind whatever it may be, God, that we would come to you. Not so that you can sweep our sin beneath the rug, but so that you can nail that sin to the cross. Not so it can just be forgotten about, but Lord, so that it'll be dealt with. Lord, Adam and Eve sowed those fig leaves. And God, I'll just even confess now, I know I'm still sowing fig leaves too to cover up the insecurity, to cover up the shame. Um, and Father, I just wanna turn to you um, just this morning, um, just to say, God, I, I need you. Um, and so just in your own heart, would you just pray to the Father, whatever it may be, Maybe it's just that, Lord, I just need to hear your voice calling me back. Maybe it's you just need to take off those fig leaves and come to him. So, Father, we love you. We pray these things through your son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.